Welcome to Learning Minnesota, connecting people one conversation at a time. Today's guest is Dr. Gwen Rosha Anderson with an expertise in the area of multilingual learning. Our topic today is English language learners. Gwen, you know what? Let's talk. But before we start talking, if you can share a little bit about yourself. Sure. I have an undergraduate degree in Spanish. And after that, I decided that I realized I was really passionate about languages and helping students learn English as well. Mm -hmm. So I got my master's degree in English. And shortly thereafter, I started teaching both English and Spanish down in southern Minnesota, um, moved up to the metro area for a good chunk of time, and then um, finished my teaching, well, I finished my, continued my teaching career in um, Recori, in the Recori School District. Yep. Um, I've been an English learner teacher, coordinator, specialist, everything under the sun, family advocate, uh, and cur I currently work with schools on school improvement. Wonderful, and I know that's actually where the two of us mm -hmm. really met was yep. at Recori. So mm -hmm. um, I remember just being always in awe at the different approaches and the advocacy that you had for the students oh. who, um, you know, needed those supports and needed for people to become more aware of who they were and what they needed, and their families yeah. as well. Thank so, you. Yeah. yeah. Um, so. When we really planned for this conversation mm -hmm. initially, we talked about you know some different things because we really want for these uh, conversations to be able to have our viewers and listeners mm -hmm. have some takeaways and things like that. Um, but all in all, really, with just about any sort of building of awareness or what you can take away, the first part that comes into consideration is looking from within mm -hmm. and identifying maybe um, some biases you might you yourself might have or maybe how some experiences that you've had shape a different mm -hmm. perspective or a different way that you look mm -hmm. um, what are some things what are some act, act like activities mm -hmm. um, things that somebody might be able to do that might help broaden their mm -hmm. awareness of who they are and mm -hmm. what their perspectives are i am by no means an equity expert but i know that i am very passionate about learning and i'm very passionate about people mm -hmm. There are so many things that like, there are books that you can read. There are people you can talk to. It's, I think it's also just getting yourself a little bit out of your comfort zone. Mm -hmm. I think as white folks, we've been really socialized to see everything as the norm and that everybody will conform to this way that everything is. But it's really just starting to understand and just stopping and thinking about why is that? How did that come to be? Um, some of the books that I think have been really helpful for me, I started with um, Waking Up White by Debbie Irving. Um, it, it's more of a, here's where, I, as a white woman, here's where I am in my journey and how it, here's how I came to understand what I now understand. And then White Fragility by Dr. Okay. Robin D'Angelo. Okay, so that has another been more of a direct, here's how it is type of a, okay, yes, now you understand this, what does this mean? And actually taking more action towards making change. I think that also just getting to know who your students are and getting mm -hmm. to know them as humans has been immeasurable. You can't quantify that. You can't really say, well, go learn, get to know your students. Well, yes, we do. But then getting to know what, what, are, what are your fears? What are your goals? You know, mm -hmm. actually taking that time, even as you know, teachers of anything, how are you getting to get to know who your students are and what they really believe? And also getting to know the families. It's, yeah not just here's here's this conversation we're going to have at school we're going to invite you to conferences and open house and hope you show up and it's what do the parents need where you know and that's 
a whole other topic in itself, but it, how can you connect families to this as well? Because you don't want to fracture who these students are as well. Right. Um, so thank you for sharing those those two titles. I yeah. actually haven't heard of that either of them. Mm -hmm. I know that I um, completed reading the book Biased. I don't know the author. That's a fabulous book as well. But what I what I kind of feel like is the underlying current in this know yourself first. Mm -hmm. um, maybe there aren't activities, tasks, or mm -hmm. things that you can do, but instead it's initiating mm -hmm. being more open and building kind of well, this awareness of not just you, but what's happening in your mm -hmm. environment. Um, I know with um, my experience currently where I'm at, where we serve students um, who are of Somali American mm -hmm. students, um, I went in and I love that you said getting, being uncomfortable and being mm -hmm. okay with it. That's one of my sayings is getting comfortable being uncomfortable. Yep. Um, I really was able to just by observation and then by our small interactions of hugs and talking about what we did over the weekend or things like that, mm -hmm. it really, it helped me to realize mm -hmm. I was very weak in understanding these students and I needed to do something. So it's, it's opening your awareness and then it's taking the initiative to mm -hmm. learn maybe where your hiccups are mm -hmm. from within. Um, and I know there are all sorts of personality tests and you know all these mm -hmm. different what is your character styles and I think all of those any chance I guess in being able to try to look within and, and see how others see you mm -hmm. from an, a different lens I think um, definitely is important prior mm -hmm. to then mm -hmm. moving to try to influence and impact mm -hmm. those that you serve. Mm -hmm. um, so have you noticed have you ever worked with teachers who maybe haven't done the work of getting to know them themselves first before mm -hmm. they try to serve students mm -hmm. and then what have you observed or what have you experienced happens with that when it's kind of like they really don't know mm -hmm. where they are blind in certain mm -hmm. areas and therefore what have you experienced? Mm -hmm. I think that being that we've been socialized to think a certain way and to see white as the norm that seeing, uh, trying to get anything, any other perspective or any new view is out there makes people feel guilty then too because they start to hear about white privilege yes. and all those things. Like, well, I'm not privileged, I grew up poor. And it's like, but your race, you go, yeah. many of our multilingual learners are not white. And understanding how race intersects with that, but you know, yes, you may have had these experiences, but it hasn't made your experience harder because your skin is black or brown. Yeah. So it's, it's also getting folks to know that it's okay to feel uncomfortable and to feel mm -hmm. to feel those things, but then to also not to get stuck there, but then question why. Why do you feel uncomfortable with this? And actually, it's a conversation we have a lot at home. When I practice, like, well, tell me more about that. Like, stop coaching me. <laughs> like, so I apologize to my spouse in advance, but he's, I practice a lot on him, but just, why do you feel that way? Where do you think that comes from? What's influencing that? Or how did you learn that? And that it's okay to feel a certain way. It's not okay to treat people poorly because of how you feel, but it's okay to feel what you feel, especially just know that, but then what could you do differently? What, what learning could you have to influence or change what, yeah. that, what that looks like? I was actually just having lunch yesterday with um, somebody who just happens to be a white male, mm -hmm. and we were talking about this, and he said, you know, he, one of his professors, he'll never forget that, he's, he said, I'm not doing anything wrong. And yeah. she said, yes, you are. 
you're just not intentionally doing mm -hmm. it. It's Fair something enough. that you've grown into, mm -hmm. you know, and that, like you said, it makes things less struggle mm -hmm. for them. It's kind of set in front mm -hmm. of, you know, of them when they have that privilege. Mm -hmm. So, um, and then I like how you talked about even just coaching your spouse, mm -hmm. digging with the why. Mm -hmm. Why might this yeah. be? Why might this have happened? Mm -hmm. What has happened? Mm -hmm. And I think just by doing that and asking yourself why, you maybe just independently coach yourself mm -hmm. and, and start to try to get down to where some of these roots mm -hmm. might have come from. Mm -hmm. So great. So once we, well, and I, I don't think that's really an, an ending thing. Like yep. you don't, it, you'll <laughs> never, you'll, and nor should you, because yeah. I don't think there is never going to be a, to a point where you get where you're completely done learning about this. Like, experts, like world-renowned experts, are continually publishing and writing and researching, yes. your, your work will never be done, nor right. should it be. But that, and again, that's good. Absolutely. And right now we have, you know, ACEs and trauma-informed and mm -hmm. all of those things are definitely surfacing. And then you have mm -hmm. SEL and, mm -hmm. you know, I mean, there are yeah. these pieces that as research happens and as people begin to really truly understand the impact of whether it be cultural uh, fluency mm -hmm. or trauma, um, they share their knowledge and mm -hmm. then that becomes ours to be able to figure mm -hmm. out what that means for us mm -hmm. and in our lives and, in, and mm -hmm. with who we impact. So it's really, it's, it's recognizing yourself in this process and where am I? It's like, yes, it's like that one person, I'm not doing anything wrong. And yes, you individually may not be doing anything, but even inaction is That's allowing true. the status quo to perpetuate. But then it's like, also, knowing, even with thinking of that person, well, I grew up poor, you know, I had mm -hmm. these same experiences. There's no privilege in that. Individually, you may not have these things, but systemically, yes. we may not even understand what that looks like because we've been, we've been reaping the benefits of that for many years as well. Yeah, absolutely. So as one continues to grow and develop their identity or identification of mm -hmm. who they are in terms of um, being culturally aware and fluent, mm -hmm then they can begin to effectively mm -hmm. serve those in their care and mm -hmm. the guardians and families mm -hmm. that surround these, um, these human beings. So maybe then we'll, we started with self and now we move to um, others. The first thing really is to identify mm -hmm. what are some key pieces that you know, if, if I am a classroom teacher and I have a student population who is, which is very diverse, mm -hmm. how do I go about, especially with English language mm -hmm. learners, how do I go about identifying them or mm -hmm. learning about them, building my mm -hmm. awareness about them? I think, I, I would hope. And from what I've seen of a lot of educators, we're, pre we're pretty good at trying to get to know who your students are. Mm -hmm. I think that one way that we, even as a, as a language specialist, I'm always going to be a little biased in that language is extremely important. Yes. And how are we getting the students to speak? Academically, yes, because we want that academic output and we want their expressive language to increase and we want their language to develop. But how are we getting them to speak about who they are and their experiences? It's like, you know, asking them questions like, short answer, close-ended questions isn't necessarily going to help. How can we start having conversations with the students, having conversations with each other? And I, get, I think that also goes with knowing who some of your key people are either in the building or in the district, in the community. Who can you talk to to get to know more about the culture and what's expected? 
Um, I've worked in a lot of systems where it's like, here's how we do school. We need to tell the parents, like, we need to teach them how to use technology. We need to teach them how they need to read to their kids at home. We need to, we need to teach mm -hmm. them, teach them. Like, we are these purveyors of knowledge. <laughs> like, we're going to tell you all these things you need to do to be better parents. But it's also, how do you see education? How do, the, how do these communities, how do these families, what, what, are, what is your role as a parent? What is my role as the educator? I know what I believe because mm -hmm. this is what I've learned. But what, what do you need from us? And what, as the school system, what do we need to do differently to help you as a family, help you as a, help the students? Yeah. Because it's not making those assumptions that I think I know what's best because I'm the educated professional. You just like, I don't know if you saw in my face, completely made a light yeah. bulb go off. Mm -hmm. That I've never, I've always seen as students come through the door, that relationship building mm -hmm. um, necessity, letting yep. them share about themselves mm -hmm. so that I can get to know them, but never have I ever attempted to get to know how they view mm -hmm. what education is or their role and my role and, mm -hmm. and whatnot. So, yeah. um, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pick a little I bit know. more than how... I've done surveys, you know what I mean? I know. Those, like, we, the send out the, we send out the parent surveys right. every year. So how, and, yeah. do you, how do you actively engage in, in and you did say, find mm -hmm. your resources, mm -hmm. find your people who are your uh, bridge makers. Mm -hmm. um, but in addition to that, how do you try to engage, interact, mm -hmm. and not as a way of I'm giving you, mm -hmm. but as in, you are definitely giving mm -hmm. me so that I can be a better teacher, educator, mm -hmm. you know, yeah. whatever. So what are some other ways? Like what? There's, well, I've been really lucky to work in some districts where we had cultural liaisons, where we've had um, members of the community hired to help be interpreters, to help with that cultural navigation. I don't think that we leverage them as much as we, sh we sure. should and we could, mm -hmm. because again, we have this view of, what school should look like and who who are the holders of the knowledge and how yes. the systems are built. I would love to flip that. I mean that's a whole nother whole nother resource we'll that I that wish. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's a whole nother resource that I would love to be able to share with folks of like how culturally responsive school leadership and how do you flip this yes. we are the school to we are going to create a school based on who our community is. Mind-blowing. I, I know. It is mind-blowing because it just completely flips how I've always known education yeah. to be. Anyway, so having some of those folks would be really helpful. Mm -hmm. If you don't have any of those folks, because I've also worked in greater Minnesota where you don't have the resources that are available, right. I've tried, I've, I've worked really hard to build relationships with families, reaching out when just, hi, this is me, I'm your teacher, reaching out when you have good things to say, um, how are things going? Can I ask, yeah. have you um, like attended um, events or is mm -hmm. something where you were not in the school setting, mm -hmm. but you made that effort to connect mm -hmm. outside? Mm -hmm. Okay. It's been awfully, it's been some really un, again, uncomfortable, that uncomfortable <laughs> where you were invited to a quinceanera and you are the only white person in the room. Yes. But what a beautiful way like the first that the student trusted me and like that they liked me enough that they would even want me to be present at such a special event in their for their family but then to be able to sit back and you know not just sit back and watch like I'm in a zoo where mm -hmm. I'm going to exoticize what's going on in front of me but it's getting to see how things work and have conversations with people sitting around me and it's 
There, there are, like I know in, um, even in the St. Cloud area with the Somali community, they have dine and dialogue with your Muslim neighbor. They have classes at the Nori Cafe on how to learn the Somali language. So, like there are things out there, but you just have to be aware of them and start seeking out some more. Or can you find somebody that may know and then start asking? I had a friend tag me on Facebook a few months ago saying, I want to learn more about Ramadan. Mm -hmm. That's a darn good question. I would too, but then trying to connect, just, just reaching out and asking that it's okay to want to know more. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. And I'm also a, a big book nerd where I always try to find an article or a book or research. Like, I don't know anything about this. I need to learn more. There is a really good book, Understanding Your Immigrant Refugee Students, okay. where it has 20, 25 different cultures from around the world and it tells about the country, the history of the country, what the culture is like, their views on this, their views on education. So it gives you, and again you don't want to have that single story, but at mm -hmm. least it gives you a jumping off point to, oh, maybe yeah. this is, maybe there, it is different than I currently understand. Maybe I do need to learn more and then, so it's more of a, I don't know where to start and I'm really nervous and I don't want to, I don't want to make anybody uncomfortable, but starting with the book. It's really it is, to start it, with the book. It's quite uncanny that when you were talking about, um, you know, being invited to the quinceanera and, and I was in my head thinking, I wonder if what she would say about books, because I am mm. one of those people oh as well. I am poor, my I, I welcome <laughs> being uncomfortable, but mm -hmm. I also, I, there is an underlying fear that I might cause others to, and I, I to be uncomfortable or to, I don't want to offend, mm -hmm. you know, and so I would like to do, um, whatever I can prior mm -hmm. to, and maybe like eliminate some of the mm -hmm. risk that it's going to happen mm -hmm. by trying to expose mm -hmm. myself to stories. But I also mm -hmm. liked then that you mm -hmm. said, don't base it on one story. Mm -hmm. And so it's, it's again, coming back to taking the initiative mm -hmm. and finding the resources to mm -hmm. be able to help you understand the mm -hmm. students that you serve. Mm -hmm. And I think that even, even as I'm sitting here reflecting on the uncomfort, that's still privilege because I have the privilege to say, ooh, that makes me uncomfortable, I'm not gonna do this. Our students don't have that choice. That's so true. It is, so it's like, ooh. It's, I'm not the one that, I'm, I'm not serving myself. I'm not being a good educator if I'm worried about my comfort level. If I truly wanna make a difference and make things better, I'm gonna need to be uncomfortable and yeah. I'm gonna, even just to be honest, I don't wanna offend, but I'm truly interested in trying to learn more and to understand, even, opening myself up in that way of please let me know if I'm if I am offending you but I'm truly coming from a place of genuine interest and curiosity I would love to learn more so that I don't like how can I be a better advocate for you and understand and yeah but it's pushing myself out of that comfort zone why like why do we I yep. keep sitting here even as an adult and, and why do old, we not want to be vulnerable and why do yeah. we not, you know, want to lay it all out on the table mm -hmm. so that we can learn and, yep. and kind of sift through that? We ask our students and families to do it every day. Why, as we, we as educators, why can't we? You have such great points. I'm completely <gasps> nerding out because oh. I'm thinking, I, I, you know, I don't mind being uncomfortable, <laughs> yeah. but I, I would rather try to make myself feel a little mm -hmm. bit more at ease, but then reduce the risk and here it's... I, don't, I have that privilege of mm -hmm. being able to say I don't like feeling uncomfortable or I have other options mm -hmm. prior to diving in and, and mm -hmm. being vulnerable. Yep. So I know. Great. I know, but even if that's one of those things, you can just take it and let it sit for a little bit. Yeah. Why, why am I uncomfortable? Why, what would I need to do to be, you know, just, it's okay. <laughs> just to, but even just to reflect on that. Yes. 
in my current position, we do so much thinking and reflecting, but I've never been able to have that. As a, as a, a teacher, you are constantly ping-ponging yes. around and you don't give yourself time. Like, but what does this just reflect? Where are you at? But it's more of a counseling yourself, what, what, recognizing how you feel and yep. what else do I need? What can I do to move forward and keep going? In a classroom, it cannot be disputed that relationships are key and mm -hmm. core to the effectiveness of the learning and the outcome um, of our students and being successful everywhere. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you can do your morning meetings or you can do your check-ins standing outside the classroom door and saying good morning. All of those will help contribute. But I guess I'm looking for um, something maybe even subtle that can be done that allows students who are not white and who are not in that environment mm -hmm. where they already have it set forth before them mm -hmm. to be able to share in the way that teaches others mm -hmm. and, that, and that allows them to mm -hmm. really start to blossom and bloom. As a language specialist, the first thing I think of immediately for my language learners is the use of home language in the classroom. I think, you, and I'm also guilty of this. Beginning teachers like, oh, we're in this, you know, we're, we're in this space right now to learn English. I want to make your English as the best we can, but then we're teaching English is the only language of value. So I have now learned, thank goodness. Like, but how to do that differently? It's like it's valuing home language in the classroom. It's how can we incorporate the language in the classroom both as an asset, but then as a like a leverage point for learning. If the student, especially if a student is newer to the English language and they're trying to learn content in English, how can we give them a chance to talk to a native speaking peer about what, just like you'd have a turn and talk in English, can we even do a turn and talk in Spanish or Somali or something? Can we have a chance for to value the language that we bring and then to even help with acquisition? And it's the research is very strong and it's to bilingual students that can maintain their home language and their multiple languages, which is why we use multilingual learners, that they're going to learn much better and faster than monolingual students. So when we want all of our, so if we're gonna talk about closing these opportunity gaps, that's what we need to do is how can we see these students as assets and all that they bring as assets and leverage that, how can we do that? As a, as a teacher, as of all, of all students, if not all students are language learners in the classroom, it's, talking about experiences, that it's, it's normalizing. Having conversations about race, having conversations about class, having conversations like these things are normal. We're not helping students learn and being more aware of the society around you if we're only talking about one group of folks. And that we say, oh, oh honey, we can't talk about that, or oh, that's not a nice thing to say. Well, where, you know, where did you, tell me about that. What, do you, what are you feeling when you have those, but it's not, shutting down the door, it's continuing a conversation. And that's why starting with that identity work and understanding yourself and understanding systems and structures, that's so important because you're not gonna know and that's how do you navigate even a conversation of what do you say if a student says, mommy, why is her black hair so curly? Yeah, isn't that beautiful? Like, you know, and then being able to respond and how can you do that in a culturally appropriate and respectful way that it's not gonna just shut the student down and seeing it as shaming them for noticing difference. Yeah. Because we all notice difference. You can't be colorblind because you're, you're not valuing who the student is. You're, you're, you're devaluing their identity and who they are and the experiences that they bring and the histories that they have. Yeah. Because we are not all the same. I love that um, 
you had talked about the turn and talk, and that mm -hmm. is that is seen in just about mm -hmm. every yep. elementary classroom mm -hmm. um, for people who are teachers who really want to allow students to have their voice, um, but to be able to partner students who speak the same language and then to recognize that and allow that to happen, that's a that's a perfect takeaway, I think, for being able to value and recognize, um, you know, that seeing them as assets. Mm -hmm. um, and so then I have a question for you with that. I know that there, in my experience, I've heard teachers say that they don't want those students to speak their native language because they don't know what they're saying. Mm -hmm. How, if we, if we set in stone that it is necessary for them to be able to hold on to that and to celebrate that, how do we address the uncomfort of maybe the, the, the staff not knowing what is being said? And I think, I mean, I think I kind of already have the idea that it's, that the trust is not there. Um, but how, how do you, uh, how do you encourage staff to approach that with the student or students so that it, it still allows them to be able to speak in, in their native language, um, but it addresses the fear or the uncertainty of what is being said? Mm -hmm. it, I think that you hit the nail on the head right with that too, with the, uh, you don't, is there trust? How do you know that native English speaking kids are on task? And this kind of brings it back to like basic classroom management. How do you, can you tell if students are on task? Do they look like they're, like, are they using the materials in front of them? Are they referencing the picture that they're, they're, they're talking about? Are they have the book out in front of them? Do they look like they're engaged? Even if you had kids across the room that you don't know what they're saying, do they look like they're doing what they're supposed to? I think that building, a, again, that respect and trust of each other of, you know, I may not know what you're saying, and that's okay, and that's great that it's, I want you to be able to understand and communicate and learn and internalize this, and I'm gonna give you the space to do that. May you still have kids that are getting off task? Absolutely, you're gonna have that with native English speakers too. But that it's okay to give them, the, even just to give it the attempt. But I also think too, how do we set up students to be successful during those times? Because it's not just, okay, turn and talk. Um, do they know how to have a conversation? And I, that's a skill that's very underutilized in a lot of classrooms, even in you know, my own classroom experience. Like it's how do we teach students how to turn and talk? How do you have an academic conversation? How do you listen to understand? How do you appropriately respond? How do you continue on and add to what they have to say? How do you politely disagree? We don't teach students how to do that. Sadly, adults don't know how to do that either. We don't know how to have a civilized conversation sometimes, especially at you know, some of my family gatherings, who knows? But, how do we help students be successful? And I think if we give them the tools that they can be successful, they will be able to stay on task more. Any of your students will be, but you're, you're teaching them how to do it. Yeah. Once the foundational pieces are there mm -hmm. for students that they could answer if, if anyone asks, you know, does your teacher care for you or do, once they are solid in saying absolutely and they recognize that um, you know, their value is, is completely there. Now we move to how do we do, and I guess I always get lost between the three, differentiation, modifications, and accommodations, but how do we execute any of those three to help support them so that they have um, 
a, a great chance at being successful in the classroom. So it, it starts with building that community of everyone is here and everyone has something to bring to the table and everyone's difference is actually what makes the uniqueness and dynamics of this group. Um, and now we build in what as a teacher can I do so that it continues to help them shine rather than, okay, now we're going to go visit our curriculum, which most likely, you know, is in English and most likely only has a certain number of characters who are not necessarily diverse. And the messages is, they're probably difficult to understand because they're based on, you know, I mean, there's so many things in um, academics that actually, I feel like they, they're not helpful. What can teachers do that in the classroom? So we'll, we'll move to systems next, but what can teachers start to do in the classroom that helps to expand that community that they've built in honoring all students? There's a very common graphic in a lot of the groups that I work with of the little kids standing on the boxes by yes. watching the fence of baseball. And I first saw that where it's equality and they all have a box and you still have one little kiddo that still can't see over the top of the fence. You know, there's the difference and then you have equity where they each get the box that they need but now we're also looking at liberation where we're removing the fence and we're talking about realities where some kids are have a hole and they're standing in a hole and some kid has five boxes and it's but to be able to talk about what does that look like for students and when we talk about equality and equity and everybody getting what they need because that you know, it's going to look different for everybody. And I, it, even as you know, having native English speakers, when I co-teach, things like that, having conversations, like, yeah, it might look different for you. But I also want to make sure that you're getting what you need. And that if I'm giving you this resource, that's not what you need. That's not fair to your learning either. And if I give it to this student, that's not fair to them either. So it's addressing that as a class too, individually, if it still resurfaces, but as a class, what do we do? Like, how do we get what we need? I also, going back to just understanding if you're going to do solid instruction, like, do you understand your standards and what the high standard is? And that EL students, it's not going to help them if like, oh, you're just going to work on letters and letter sounds today, or we're just going to give you this picture book even though you're a 10th grader. It's still maintaining, knowing what your standards are at that grade level is paramount, but then also understanding the language levels of the students. And I think that's what some schools the EL teacher may know what these levels are and what that means, but that's a big piece of instruction. What can the students be expected to produce, knowing what English levels they currently have, but then understanding your standards, but what would that potentially look like for language learners and how that might be different? And then, yeah. I feel like it, it moves away from the industrial model mm -hmm. that we are still holding so strong to. And I know the argument of I can't teach 25 different it's lessons hard. and I, I get that um, but I also see that it the longer that goes on um, the less of a chance we have of creating a strong future for everyone um, so with that identifying and knowing who each student is and I, I like that you said both individually with students but then as a class talking about how what somebody might need might not be something that somebody else might need and I remember using the analogy when I taught third grade that there are some kiddos who um, already know how to ride a bike 
And so maybe they don't need the lesson of how do you ride a bike. Maybe they need the lesson for how do you do tricks on your bike, or how do you, you know, how are you, how are you safe on the roads when you're riding your bike? Or maybe there are some kiddos who, you know, still need the, the training wheels, the support for being able to. And maybe that right now isn't the right lesson at that time. Maybe they're ready to learn about safety. And you know, so. We definitely use that as a as the whole classroom to understand, but I do know that for for teachers in general education, the students that come in are probably already predisposed to what school is going to look like, and it's going to be that model of hit the majority and then see if we can do something for those outliers. You know, either way, and um, yeah, it's it's kind of a paradigm shift mm -hmm. thinking about things. So when you when you talk to your students and the class is not only understanding but in agreement that they need to they need to own their learning but they need to be able to advocate for what they need um, then you we talked about or i guess you talked about how do teachers connect with the supports to be able to bring in because i know curriculums, they have suggestions, right? But I was told that a curriculum is like a grocery store. It's all there. And you need to know what your list is, you know, what you need, and you need to pick from it. And I feel like because it's all there, it's maybe lacking in, um, in meaning or in the way that it will work or the way that it'll connect with the students. So what's the next step? That's a really good analogy of thinking of it as a grocery store because I'm thinking of making a recipe. I don't need everything in the grocery store either, so how do I select? That's a really nice analogy. I think it goes, also goes back to knowing those language levels of the students. Where are they at? Because there are, certain there, are, there are certain activities that we'll work with all students, but to understand and be able to supply resources or readings or differentiated assessments of their learning, it's going to, it, it can differ based upon the language that they have. And also knowing the home language level of the student, a little bit trickier to find out how do you find the native language proficiency. But if you can do that, there are some multilingual resources that you can use or bilingual books or you know, what, what things could we bring in to support if they can read and write in their first language already, great, then I can give them this book. If they can't read and write in their first language, it's a really big waste of your time at this time to give them a book that they can't understand in that language either. Um, I'm going to be the first to admit that I did not have an extremely diverse classroom ever. Um, it was only when I moved into instructional coaching that I had more of exposure and experience working with students who weren't white middle class students. Um, and now in my position as well, I don't have a classroom. And so one thing that I've heard and that I've tried to use, um, and I, I believe I probably read it in a book as well, um, is incorporating images um, you know, when you look at texts and, and try to gauge whether or not you think that this, your students will be able to read and comprehend that, um, to, to incorporate the idea of images, but to also do um, a lot of enhanced talk and allowing for um, their voice to be heard and, and for them to share. Um, anything, any other, I mean, those are, the, those are the two big things that I guess I've experienced in my time 
in education, whether in the classroom or um, helping to support in the classroom, is images and audio are kind of the go-to pieces, and it doesn't matter what language they speak. It's the idea that a visual um, or allowing the um, home language to be used and maybe even translated for them so that they can understand. Is there anything else or am I completely off base too? No, I think that's a, those are great things to consider. I think that if the Shiraki Holly book about culturally responsive yeah. teaching is also, there was an activity in there that talked about the different types of multicultural texts. And I think that was very eye-opening for me as well, where it talked about you have, is it the book Cinderella, but the characters are exactly the same, the story exactly the same, but you literally just change the skin color of the students. You know, so it's also being cognizant of how are these people being portrayed in the books too, because you don't want to necessarily perpetuate those same negative stereotypes either. Right. So it's also kind of going at that, is this, is this something that's actually indicative of the community? Is this something that's going to create more biases for my students? Um, I don't necessarily want to stray away from some of those either because I think that also opens up the conversation depending on how you frame it. If you are intentional about using some of those, what are the messages that you get from this? And that this would be a really interesting conversation to sit down with a group of students who are white or black or brown and then what do you see, what do you notice, what do you wonder and really digging into that as a strategy rather than as a Oh, I'm just not going to do that because then you're just you're again picking and choosing what you're choosing to show the students and showing them these things you know sheltering them from what else is existing we're not doing a great job for helping them understand what they're going to see in the real world either well what does it mean when you see this and how would you respond and what does that make you feel and but yeah. it's, a, it's a teaching tool rather than avoiding it I think that was really eye-opening for me because I'd never really considered it from that level before either. Was I just perpetuating the same stereotypes that I'd always been given based upon the books? Like I, I knew to get the books, I didn't know which books to get. So I, and even if that's one thing I've learned too for my own children is that having multicultural books at home is something that's so powerful too because you're not teaching them that white is the norm and that you are going to go into a world where it is beautifully diverse and that like let's talk about what that means and then but then let's also talk about the experiences and more learning again it's all learning it's how do you frame it good yeah. bad or otherwise and we are also um, learning minnesota is hoping that this will be explored by parents and supporters in the community um, of their school districts and so i think what you just said is a fantastic way for parents to be able to consider those who um, you know are are white and have white children to be able to explore bringing in a diverse um, text and looking at like you said not keeping the message the same but just changing the picture mm -hmm. um, to you know to show that the illustrations yeah. have been addressed but to really look at what are, there's actually, there's a resource that um, when I work with children's literature, it's identifying bias um, in, in text. And one of them is to look at the relationships of the characters in the story, to look at the storyline, to look if there's actions for change. Also to look at the copyright and the author and the yeah. author's background, because mm -hmm. sometimes, I mean, it was, there were so many books that I thought we had fabulous messages, right? But then when I dug a little bit deeper, I realized, wow, I was maybe exposing, you know, some students to something that could have been detrimental or traumatic. You know, not to say that 
they should be taken off the shelves or anything, but to have that awareness again, yes. and then for my own children to be able to incorporate good quality text so that they recognize, like you said, that beauty of um, the colorful world that we live in. So yeah, yeah that actually just hit me like a ton of bricks just with Read Across America and just learning more about Dr. Seuss. Mm -hmm. I was 2020 years old when I discovered that there are so many things that I had never been taught to recognize and I spent a good chunk of time pouring over some more research behind the meanings of those and yeah it's there are amazing. I um, spent quite a bit of time at uh, a bookstore here just recently and I found um, several books and actually some of the staff there were also kind of nerding out with me in the children's section. Um, but there are new series coming out, graphic novels, where the main character is no longer, you know, a white boy or girl. Um, there's a Somali-American boy, Sadiq, and the author has now published four books and I bought all of them off of the shelves and brought them in. And um, But it's so great to see that as time goes by, new literature is being created for the purpose of all um, and not just, you know, like, yeah. So we're talking about classroom and now I think this is where I believe I probably will just be in awe and learning here and maybe ask a few questions, but systems and assessments for students. You talked about what level where do we start with that in understanding what that looks like? That's a really big question. Yep. I'll start with the assessment start piece. Small. I know. We'll start with just the, the assessment piece first. Um, in the state of Minnesota, WIDA, the WIDA consortium has, provides our English language development standards and they also provide our language screener tools for when they first arrive into the district and they also provide the annual language development assessment, the access test. Um, I believe we're just, we're ending the WIDA window is a recording time now in, in March, but once that assessment comes out, then you'll have those annual language development scores. Then, so the, Can I jump in? Yes, please. So WIDA, W-I-D-A. Yep. Doesn't stand for anything anymore. Okay, yes. I remember that acronym. Correct. Yes, it used to stand for something and I don't even like sharing what it, it, that's not even important anymore and that it's actually changed a few times over the years. It literally is just WIDA, okay. like share is just one word. WIDA is just, it's WIDA, and it's just the consortium, it's out of the University of Wisconsin-Madison, and they, 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 this is what they've developed in a very large portion of the United States now, also has the WIDA consortium for their English language standards. Okay, and there is a window that yep. you can do. So for a student who, we have a lot of students mm -hmm. who are coming in and going out, and so if a student would come in, April or May that they would not be able to I mean is that you said when when they enter into a district they take the WIDA um, assessment so a student who comes in toward the end of the year and who has not been to a district before so is new to country they are not able to take that WIDA assessment until the fall or when they, the school not resumes? the access the access is only offered in that February March window every year okay they also have for kindergarten they have the kindergarten WIDA so it's academic like, a, like some academic placement test so it's the kindergarten WAPT WIDA okay. 
access place access placement test. There we go, the WIDA access placement test um, for the kindergarten version. And then they also have the WIDA screener, which is the grade one through 12 version of that as well, now online to very much mirror what the access test looks like. So they can take that at any point in the year. They can't necessarily use it for progress monitoring. So if I wanted to know how their language is developing throughout the year, I can't keep giving the screener throughout the year, but I can do it just that initial dipstick of where the student is at just to see what they can do and then go from there. But the access itself is only once a year. Okay, so both of the assessments are used, but the WIDA is used more for, and not for progress monitoring, but for students new to the district and then the access test, which is only like January, like a small yep. window, yep. that could be used, as, that's the progress monitoring piece. Yep, and it's given, it's similar to the MCAs in Minnesota, where you just give them once a year. So it's, take it for what it is, it was that one snapshot at that one time for that one student, depending on who was administering it, what the room was like, but it is that at least annually, they'll be able to measure the progress and then see from year to year what their growth towards their language targets. Minnesota now also does language growth targets for individual students based on their initial tests that they take and then the next year they'll be able to get a growth trajectory of how long it'll approximately take for the student to reach proficiency. So I, as a language specialist again I'm really excited that we're finally in the accountability piece because we've always just been, there's no accountability. It's not special ed where you have the IDEA and the ADA behind you to, you have some legal backing. And it's not the MCAs, which was mandated by the state, but now we actually have a little bit of accountability that we can actually, we're on the radar now, so we can actually be in more conversations when we're talking about systems. Well, what is this, what does our EL accountability look like? What do our scores look like? How are our students doing? How are they progressing? Which has been great. Great. So we start with assessments. Yep. Then what? Once you have the assessment, it also depends on how that, you know, having a good communication plan of how that information is disseminated. I recently discovered a district had never seen their WIDA scores before for their students. You, this, they are new, how, you've never seen this before? Who, then how do we communicate this with everybody? This is very important information to know. One, do you know it's there? Two, how are we supporting teachers and other support staff to understand what that data means? Because it's one thing to get a bunch of data and a bunch of reports. Like, well, that's very beautiful. The WIDA ones are they're color coordinated. They're, they're beautiful reports. What does that mean? What do I need to do with this information? And if this is what also connects to that system, how are we creating a system of supporting all of the staff to know what those scores mean and how do you use that in instruction? It may not change, the, it hopefully won't change your content. Like you're gonna keep teaching the standards and teaching your content. You may use different materials to help you reach those standards. Like again, you're at the grocery store. I may not need black pepper for this recipe, but I need white pepper instead. It's a fancy, it's a bougie recipe. So I'm gonna get some white pepper. It's like what specifically do you need to address the needs of the students? And I think, Having a system that will have, like, how are we going to communicate these? How are we going to train? How are we going to support? How are we going to incorporate this into something over time that we look at? It's the access test is given once a year. Are we going, as a school or as a district, are we going to look at their language levels throughout the year? Or are we going to just, is that one snapshot where we make our world's best workforce planner, our school improvement goal, and then we never look at it again? But how do we make this user friendly and how do we get folks to understand or what else do we need to do 
WIDA does offer also as well a progress, now I feel like, a, like I'm peddling WIDA, but they have a progress monitoring tool that you can use so that you could use it throughout the year. So you can actually give this multiple times a year to see, well, I know this student was, you know, needed some growth in writing. Well, now after my instruction, how is it going in that specific area? Again, it's more assessment. So it's more about, do we want to give more assessment? Right. But if we're going to get that assessment, how are we going to actually use this data, not just give another assessment? So it's being cognizant of that in the planning as well. Don't kill the students with assessments. Right. And I know your role right now is to work with schools um, and support them. Do you have an experience with, and you don't have to name any school or district, but that has implemented a somewhat successful plan of how to look and grapple with and then do something with the data? Like, could you tell us a story or right now it seems like everybody is trying to make, do you, you know, figure it out? My schools, are, we're working on it. We, the, the schools that I work with, um, are some identified as needing the most supports and be based on their, their MCAs and mm -hmm. their, you know, their access scores and things like that and their attendance rates. But it's also, my doctoral research actually bleeds right into this. I was just kind of, we were talking one day at a meeting, I was like, gosh, I really wonder what those schools that are showing really high growth on the access test, I wonder what they do. Because everybody, like, what, what, who's doing it well and what are they doing? And then it just kind of hit me one day. I would like to research this. I would like to figure out what they do. And then it spiraled into my whole doctoral program. So that's actually what I'm researching is who are these schools that were identified for high growth? Um, I'm looking at what are they doing based on a, frame, a framework that I've chosen to make of a best practice in the research based on this framework, what are you doing? But then how are you implementing it? And it's been fascinating to talk to the leaders of these buildings to find out that it's not a magic potion that they purchased somewhere. It's doing things consistently and then doing it well, making sure it's support. It's building a great support of, does the administration understand the need and are they communicating an urgency that these students are all of our students and we are going to serve all of our students? Are they communicating a professional development plan for here's how we're going to get everybody what they need to be trained and coached and understanding this data and to be culturally responsive and respectful and all, you know, how do we build a culturally responsive classroom? It's how are we using data? It's interesting to hear these themes emerging. How are we using this data to inform what we're doing, both as a program? How are we using this data to reflect what we're doing well? And are we doing what we want to be doing? Are we not? So it's just being intentional with some of those pieces, like that support from the admin, looking at your data, collaboration time, and actually working like the EL teacher is working with classroom teachers about what are the strategies that work well. And often the EL teacher knows these students the best. How are you leveraging this specialist to know what, what can I do differently in my classroom to best meet the needs? Because it's not a magical answer where you have this one person that's going to come in and they're magically going to be English proficient and that's our goal. And is that our goal is to just make them monolingual English speakers? But it's what do we want to do and how are we monitoring it? So it's those key pieces really that when they are in place and they're done, um, with intention and consistently um, that you begin to see really the impact start to, to take mm -hmm. shape and form. Yeah. Um, so 
with then the assessments and then identify and then understand how to disseminate this information, creating a plan, um, who are, and you talked about, you know, the, the EL staff and how they're, they're integral in playing a role of being able to help with identifying strategies and knowing those students. Um, have you seen schools or school districts incorporate their, I don't want to say PLC time, but it could be, or their prep time or whatever, where it allows for the staff to be able to connect? Because I know across the board, that is one thing that a lot of educators um, are frustrated with is that they know that they need to collaborate. They know that they need to connect and that they need to work together and co-plan and maybe co-teach and really reflect and read data and talk about students. <laughs> Step back to the time, you know. So have you seen a successful, like a model of being able to allow or what, what's your experience with that? It's been interesting to see all of the different types of programs that are out there. I work, I've, I've worked in, I've worked for, I've worked with, I've observed so many different systems. The ones that seem to be most successful are the ones that have some sort of systemic time built into the schedule, whether it is PLCs, whether it's a co-planning time, whether it's one day a week, you don't have bus duty or it, but it's something that they're actually that it's sacred time that they have in the schedule and again that's where it comes from the admin and support it's you don't have to be an expert administration but you know what do we need it's that time to collaborate it, it, it was hard to have collaboration with some of my colleagues and then oh whatever happened and then that time was taken away it's so hard for EL to support what's going on in the mainstream classroom if you are never talking to each other we don't have time we don't have, we, we lost that structure where it was built in to actually have the conversation. So look at that. It's hard to break down that EL silo where, well, you just do your thing because you're over here. Like, well, yes, we do specific things. And here's how we actually need to support the mainstream classrooms. Because if, imagine if all the arrows in a school were all pointed in the same direction, that's what we're trying to do. We don't want to keep fracturing the core and keep pulling out. You're going to go pull and do this. You're going to pull and do this. How can we get the same arrow for everybody and we're all pointing in the same direction and we're combining effort so that we're using time as a resource, not as a, like, we don't have any time. Well, we have time. How are we using that time? Absolutely. Have you taken an audit of how your time is being spent throughout the week, throughout the day, throughout the, you know, the month, whatever, whatever, how is it best being used and is it being used? It's just, so it's, could we be doing things better with the finite amount of time that we have? Yeah. You actually hit three different things when you were talking that um, resonated with me, and hopefully I can remember all three. That's one impressive. of them, though, <laughs> one of them was yes and, and I think with my position um, currently, it's uh, whether or not I should work with students or work in classrooms or you know. But it's a it's a yes and. It's not a yes but. It's not a no only this. It's there are so many different avenues that must be taken in order for this to be effective. Um, the second thing, the admin support and being able to do maybe a collect an, an idea of what your time looks like. Maybe over the course of um, a week in the classroom or maybe as an administrator, the time in the month, how many staff meetings or if there's time in the mornings for PLCs and are they being used and you know that sort of a thing to be able to really get a snapshot of 
where time is not being used effectively and it's being wasted and how you can tweak and modify some of those things um, so that you can remove obstacles for teachers. I mean, that's really, and that's the third piece is as admin, you don't have to, you, you shouldn't tell, um, but your, your role is to be able to bring in as many supports and remove as many obstacles as possible for the teachers, and the support staff, and everybody that is rallying around these students to be able to do what they need to do. Mm -hmm. So I think yeah. that you, I'm mean, just ping-ponging off you now, I think that's one thing that in my experience as a teacher and as a building and district leader that it's been hard. People don't necessarily want to do something. There's one more thing. This is one more thing. And people always, you know, even I'm very guilty of it as well. I assumed that they aren't doing this because of why, or I'm not going to choose to do this because I think I'm, I'm assuming. How often do we ever ask students what they need? How often do we ask parents, what do you need? How often do we ask staff, what do you need? And I think, you know, as administrators, that's part of it. What, what do you need and how can I make that happen? Because I think that a lot of teachers, nobody's in education because they want to hurt kids. We all want to do amazing, great things, but if we're not doing these great things that we're trying to talk about, why do you need this? Do you, you know, what can I do to help create this environment that it, it is going to happen? And just asking, don't assume. And I, I'm, I'm very guilty of that. I, I, well, I, I, I know the EL stuff. I'm, I'm just gonna, here's what you need. I've never asked. So I apologize to all of my colleagues that <laughs> for the years I never asked. It's funny, this seems like it brings it back to, you know, full circle about the assumptions and back to, you know, the role of identifying what I think education looks like and my role in it and not assuming that that's the same mm -hmm. idea for everybody. Mm -hmm. So to come with a humble, humble posture of learning. Yeah. I come not knowing all of the answers, but I will be the first person to help you figure it out. Absolutely. Um, I'm trying to, you know, like build this. So we've got our assessments, we've got our plan, we have our support systems, we have an idea of what that looks like for administrators and other stakeholders to be able to assist and help um, create the best possible outcome um, for our students. Is there anything else that I, again, this is, my, I'm way out of this realm. So I'm gathering and I'm kind of sharing how I understand it and how I see it. Um, is there anything else that might be missing? I would be remiss if I didn't talk a little bit more just about the use of language as well. That as a language specialist, that language is not just talking to, turning and talking to your neighbor. It's not just having a book. It's not just filling out your journal, but it's understanding what language needs do you have in your classroom? What vocabulary is not being taught? What sentence structures, what text structure, what types of text, what genres do you need to talk about? But it's being intentional with that. Even as an adult, I know strategies. If I, do, if I come to a word I don't know, or if I have, the, if I'm, gosh, help me reading Shakespeare again. How do I, I, I have the skills that I have acquired painfully over time to figure out what this means that I can't go in with this assumption that my students know what to do and what's being expected. Like they may understand what content is that they need to know, but if they put the objectives on the board or if they know what that looks like, great. But what language do you need to do this? How are you going to, are you arguing? Are you analyzing? Are you expressing? Are you explaining? 
what do you need to do with the language? And then also just being clear with that because I think once the teacher is clear on what the expectation is, you can explain to the students, here's what I'm expecting, here's what some, here's is what giving modeling, here's what good language looks like. Let's practice, you practice, I practice, we practice, we all practice. But giving, creating that time, getting the students to use language more. It's no longer the days where we're standing in front of the classroom, nor should it ever have been, but we can't just stand and talk at the students. How are we getting them to use the language and manipulate the language so that they're internalizing this learning? So building in as many opportunities for them to, to use their voice and to practice um, verbally is a, a key thing. Yeah. Good. Anything else? I could talk for days and days and days. I, I know. Like, and then I read a book, good book on this, and then I have a really good resource on this. But it's just being OK with where you're at, but not being afraid to move forward. I think that's kind of what I've slowly learned. It's one thing to be paralyzed with the fear of wanting to, to, to of hurting people or offending somebody. But you're never going to make positive change. Well-behaved people never make history. But So it's what do you need to do? and do something about it. Don't just sit and hope that it's going to get better. What, what do you need and figure it out? So it really comes down to, there were so many takeaways in our conversation, but it really comes down to um, knowing yourself first, knowing your students and their culture and the community from which they come, and then creating systems that are in place that have multiple people who are committed and dedicated to following through in being consistent and making sure that um, there are those, like, like you said, the dipsticks, the spot checks along the way. Um, well, fabulous. I'm excited to actually go and, and implement some of these. And I myself already am so thankful that you've helped me open some of my awareness. I didn't even realize that I had assumed so many things and um, I think it's conversations like these that allow us to be able to dig further and then start to ask ourselves why or what experiences did we have that shaped that that belief or um, that assumption. If there might be people who want to reach out to you or to contact you um, because they want to be coached <laughs> or they say Gwen, help me to uncover all of my... <laughs> but if, if they were to re want to reach out to you and, and pick your brain or connect with you or maybe have you come work um, in their building or district, how might they be able to get a hold of you? Best is probably email. Uh, my current position, I travel a lot. So email, you can always get a hold of me on email and I don't always know the incoming calls, but uh, my email address is gwenrosha, G-W-E-N-R-O-S-H-A at yahoo.com. I have other social media things, but I'm not really active in a lot of those other ones, so email is usually the best. Sure. All right, thank you. Yeah. Um, thanks for taking the time to join our Learning Minnesota discussion with Dr. Gwen Rosha Anderson on the topic of English language learners. Don't forget to visit our site, learningminnesota.com, for additional resources on this particular topic and more videos in our resource library. Mm -hmm.